We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. In 2003, Nike signed 13-year-old Freddie Adu to a seven-figure contract. But Freddie didn't live up to the hype. He has turned down every single documentary project looking closely at the details of his career. Until now. People are going to look at everything you did because of the hype surrounding your arrival and what they think you can be. I'm Grant Wall, and this is American Prodigy, Freddie Adu, from Blue Wire Podcasts. Blue Wire. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, joined as always by my co-host Nick Filato. Today we're here to break down the All-22 coaches film of the offensive side of the ball during the Giants' 19-17 victory over the Cincinnati Bengals, their third consecutive win, one that brings them to 4-7, first place in the NFC East. Quite honestly, this team could easily be 6-5 right now, and that's being basically conservative in my mind at least and that's not even including a Tampa game which they could have easily won we're just talking about the Eagles and Cowboys games two games they should have won we all could see that one anyone could see that one but again this team is playing better football than they were last year this team is playing better football than they were the year before and I think this game was a prime example of it were their opponent was their opponent some kind of amazing opponent no it was the Cincinnati Bengals team without Burrow as well, but it doesn't matter because this is the first time they've played a team like this, and this isn't the only team. They didn't get a chance to play the Jaguars this year. They could beat that team, you know? The Panthers, this was a tough schedule, so it's not like the Giants have faced some kind of easy schedule, and this is game number six of their easy schedule, so for it to all come together like this, in my mind, through that 10 or 11 minute mark in the third quarter before Daniel Jones went out of the game, because that's kind of the point I'm evaluating up to when it comes to where this team played in this game. It's a different game after McCoy comes in, as expected. But for it to come together for that first, I don't know, 
40 minutes of play or whatever it was or 35 minutes of play was a great thing to see when we watched the all 22 at least in my mind nick did you before we dive into you know offensive things and of that nature do you kind of feel the same way like this was kind of a almost very close to a perfect game with the exception of special teams until jones got hurt and the evan ingram fumble i mean for a 19 to 17 win like i wasn't biting my nails or anything like that like i felt like the giants should have won this game by much more and if they had daniel jones they would have won by much more i mean you could see the entire offense was curtailed to not allow colt mccoy to kind of have these big negative plays it was very very conservative it was let's kick these field goals and let's get out of cincinnati with a win and how I hope with a week of planning against Seattle, they can kind of put something together. Obviously, I'm not too confident about that game, but we're going to talk about the All-22 of the Cincinnati Bengals game. And again, the Giants are able to establish the run. They're able to, if you watch this All-22, man, you see those double teams come together, man, and it's lovely, and that just allows the play-action pass to thrive, man. Because how many times did you see those linebackers read those double teams forming, and they all bite up, and then what happens? Because they're reading the run keys, they bite up, and then the Giants and Daniel Jones or Colt McCoy, they have an ability to throw the football behind them because this the ability to sell the run is something that this offense is somewhat mastered at this point. Yeah, and you bring up a great point. If you guys want to see a great example of this, just check out the play Evan Ingram fumbled on because on that play, I have not seen linebackers and second-level defenders, whatever you want to call them because they were probably a safety and there's probably one nickel guy, bite on a run fake like they did on this play, and Evan Ingram was literally wide open to the point where he was just streaking down the seam, and Jones hit him in a good spot because there was obviously deep safety coverage, and he couldn't throw it too far ahead of him. Obviously, Ingram fumbled. I still feel like this was a pretty bang-bang play, but if you slow it down, it does kind of feel like Ingram could have done a better job securing the football, but this is just a great example of what Nick just talked about. Their ability to win at the point of attack, and there's a great example of this early where the Giants come out in 22 personnel really early in this game, which is crazy. And the only receiver on the field is Austin Mack, which to me, like, God bless you, Jason Garrett. I just don't understand why you wouldn't just put Darius Slayton on the field here. When you literally put Austin Mack in here when this 22 personnel play, it is so damn obvious that you're going to run the football. But the point of this is they do run the football and they get four yards out of this. Despite being in 22, despite tipping your play to a full extent by putting Austin Mack on the field, they get four yards. And this was a microcosm of the game because, like Nick said, they were winning the point of attack early and often in so many different spots, backed up in their own end zone, around in between the 20s, around midfield. Obvious rundowns, not so obvious rundowns. It didn't matter. Out of the gun, under center, that play I referenced was under center. Um, And it made a big difference in this game. And for those who want to say, you know, I just had someone on Twitter come at me, Nick, like, really, I guess he was an Eagles fan or something, definitely not a fan of the Giants, because when I tweeted, like, oh, it sucks that Jones went down, he was really cooking, he's like, cooking, 10 points is what you consider, 10 points and a half is what you consider cooking, but it's like, literally, the Giants did not punt in the first half, if Evan Ingram doesn't fumble that football, they're putting three or seven on that board, and they're driving down again to put three or seven, likely seven, uh, both situations, at least in my mind, before Jones goes out with an injury, no punts, He's moving the ball. He threw for 200-plus yards in basically two quarters of football. I consider that cooking. So I do I. really do. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, like, I mean, dude, you know this, and I'm, Giants fans know this too. Daniel Jones is an easy punching bag for people. Yeah. So people are always going to take their shots at Daniel Jones, and they're not watching the film. Now, we, I feel like we do a good job being objective here and criticizing Daniel Jones when he makes his mistakes, which he does do. But in the last three games, he's played pretty damn good football. People aren't going to give him credit unless he goes out and has, like, the Washington game that he had. Mm-hmm. 
uh, last year, the second Washington game, which they still didn't give him credit for because they were like, oh, it's Washington's defense. So Daniel Jones is going to really have to go above and beyond to have his detractors kind of kind of come back on their initial takes from him. Yeah, I think you're spot on about that, Nick. In today's world, it's a lot driven by fantasy football and big stats, touchdowns and yardage. Even though the yardage was there in this game for Jones, I mean, he was basically on pace for 400 yards passing, which is incredible. Not that they would have kept that pace up. They would have obviously at some point gotten, you know, milked the ball. But until those touchdowns and all the numbers come up into the fantasy realm, I think that will be the case. But for what we're looking for overall in this game, I think this was kind of the culmination. And again, it was the easiest matchup, of course, for this, for Jones and the Giants. The Giants also provided him an incredible pocket consistently throughout this game. But there are key areas where Daniel Jones improved and has improved on over these last three games that we saw him struggle at early in the season. First of all, he's made, doing a much better job stepping up into the pocket. I had three plays in my notes where he stepped into the pocket. Obviously, the deep ball is one thing, the one to Slayton that he just missed, but there were two other plays where he did an excellent job of feeling that outside pressure that was coming. And again, they weren't totally blown plays by Fleming and Thomas, but there was some outside pressure. And instead of rolling to his right and going off his back foot, he stepped into the pocket. And that's also a product of the interior of locking really well. But more so, it's Jones, because you always have at least that ability to step up. You might take a hit when you throw the ball, but that's one area. Second area, adjusting post-snap with his processing, using his eyes to manipulate the safety, and realizing when he has those single high looks that he can take those shots. Another thing he did an excellent job of. And then overall, when you just look at how many how consistently Jones was able to get them out of third-down situations and convert before the injury... I really thought this was the best football he's played. And I think it, most importantly, I've seen him clean up a lot of the mistakes that I'm sure the coaches have worked on with him. And you know, when he looks like he did in this game to me, Nick, I feel like there's not much more you could be asking for out of a franchise quarterback. And I feel like when he looks like he did in this game, it's it's high end upside it's not the kind of upside it's not like where I felt about him earlier this season I I really do feel like this game was an awesome game to me out of Jones he did everything he could have done with what you know with what opportunities he had pre-snap to post-snap like you said manipulating the safety and pocket maneuverability like you said not just stepping up into the pocket but that third and five play with 47 seconds left in the half that was a great play by Daniel Jones because Shane Lemieux gets beat to the half man outside and he does a good job kind of flushing him up and away and allowing Daniel Jones to step up but we've seen Daniel Jones in this situation before Daniel Jones takes off running but instead, this time he's checking the coverage, keeps his eyes downfield, resets his feet, maneuvers around pressure, and then hits Golden Tate for a first down on a strong throw from the middle of the field to the sideline where it would had to be placed on the outside shoulder of Golden Tate, and that's where he placed the ball. That's a big-time throw. That's a big-time play from a mental standpoint, from a footwork standpoint, from a pocket management standpoint. So we're talking about Daniel Jones. And from an arm talent And standpoint. from an arm talent standpoint. We're talking about Daniel Jones kind of checking all the boxes with yes. even a simple what, seven-yard gain like this. Yep. And it, if you go back and you dive into the All-22 of some of Daniel Jones' big plays, you come away really impressed from the Cincinnati game. At least I did. Yeah, I did as well, completely. I mean, the only areas I thought he struggled at all in this game was when, and it's interesting because I had a conversation with a friend of the show. Um, you guys may know him, Bobby Skinner from Talking Giants, good friend of the show. We had a conversation off pod about this this week. The only times he struggles really, at least in this game, and it's kind of been consistent this season, is when the Giants run those stick routes. The stick routes at this point to me, me have become what they should be these stick routes are low risk low reward 
and that's fine. Sometimes the offense needs that, but in our mind, in me and Bobby's mind, we fully believe, and I'm interested to hear your thought process on this because I wrote this down because I wanted to hear what you thought because me and Nick haven't discussed this, but in my mind, and and again, I discussed this with Bobby, we think they've actually become low risk, I'm sorry, low reward, high risk, low reward, because they've put so many of these stop routes on tape that defenses are sitting on them consistently now. And there were two or three passes, Jones, during this game that should have been intercepted because they were running these stick routes. And these stick stop type routes, to me, you can still operate quick game because obviously every offense needs to operate quick game sometimes. It's not like you can get away with just throwing, you know, downfield every play. We, I'm not going to sit here and say that. While I do like more of the, you know, vertical concepts, I think quick game is a big part of any NFL offense. But Pat Shermer and a lot of other coordinators consistently ran quick game by just using mesh and crossing routes. And it's essentially can allow the quarterback to get the ball out of his hands just as fast as the stop routes and the stick routes. But in my mind, there's way lower risk on these crossers and there's way higher reward when the defense misses, you know, when the mesh, you know, when the mesh creates great separation on the defense. The defense has a miscommunication. And then that crosser, especially the way Jones throws crossers. I mean, last year you saw it. Some of Jones' best ball placement was on the crossers. It allowed for some big yard after catch game. And we just don't see enough crossers in my mind in this offense. And they're kind of seem to me to be replaced with these stick routes. And these stick routes to me have become really high-risk plays. These are where almost all of his interception-worthy throws have come. They were two or three in this game. There's been multiple throughout the season. Obviously, the San Francisco game, it flipped the entire momentum of that game. That was kind of a back-and-forth game. People don't realize until he threw that interception before the half. So I don't know where you stand on these, but I think they need to find a different way to use quick game. And I would go back to kind of the concepts that worked with Shermer, more of the mesh and the crossing routes. I feel like, I mean, in this game, they did have mesh concepts, I believe, at least maybe one and they have done that throughout the season I'm certain for that and they also have been running slant flat which slant flat for sure Daniel Jones almost threw yeah. an interception on to the, the play oh, yeah. to Mackenzie Alexander towards the end of the first quarter but I, I I see the value in the stick routes and I think there has been plenty of six yard seven yard eight yard five yard gains throughout the season that were with these quick spacing concepts but I see where you and Bobby are also coming from. I think that Daniel Jones, that the problem with this is it's just you get the ball, you, you have a pre-snap read, you get the ball, you confirm it post-snap, and then you fire. It's mm-hmm. a bang-bang type of play. And if you have any sort of hesitation or if you just have that hubris where you think you could fit the football into a really tight window, you put the ball into a precarious spot. Now, Daniel Jones can do a better job of that, and I feel like Jason Garrett has done a better job of not relying as much on the quick game, which I think also coincides with the fact that the offensive line is blocking a lot better. So Daniel Jones has more time to hit deeper concepts, you know, intermediate to deep parts of the field. But I, I do feel like over the last couple weeks, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, they, they haven't utilized them as much. Now this game- No, they, you're 100% right. In this game, there was, I think, two plays. There was a slant flat, but there was another play where kind of two bangles crashed down on, I think, Evan Ingram. He actually made the catch yeah. for a nine-yard gain on one of them, which was a really nice catch by Evan Ingram because he comes back to the football, jumps up, secures the ball, and that was kind of a dangerous throw in that one in that one spot. And there was another one that was a pass deflected where it was those kind of concepts, but I wouldn't necessarily stray away from those plays, and I don't think you guys are suggesting that at all. No. I mean, I'm not suggesting to stray yeah. away from those plays entirely. I would just instead mix, kind of go to more of a mix of a lot more of the mesh stuff they used last year. I just feel yeah. like at this point, and like you said, you're 100% right, and I'm not going to correct you if you're wrong because you're not wrong. Yeah. They have been doing less of it, 
but they put so much of it on tape earlier this they did, year. Yeah, they did. And teams are watching this tape over and over. Every defensive coordinator is that now they're sitting on. They're guessing spots where they're going to use these stop routes because there are a lot of times where they're going to where down in distance or you know game game script. Let's say predicts that it might happen and i feel like defenses are sitting on it there were definitely some balls yeah. that should have been i don't know if i want to say should have been intercepted but could have been could intercepted, have been is, could have been his better yeah. could have left to tip balls you know led to tip balls and i feel like the way he's throwing the football right now from an arm talent standpoint you talked about the throw to the hash uh that seven yard gain i mean guys the throw to slayton that just missed i, I i'm gonna put this graphic up online this is like intense arm talent like daniel jones launched the ball from his own 20 yard line flat at the 20 yard or i'm sorry his own 21 yard line i charted it flat at his own 21 the ball literally drops on the opposing 20 yard line it went 80 yards in the air like that is like any questions you ever had about his arm his arm strength at least because it's not the same as arm talent but any questions you ever had about his arm strength which are you know there were big question marks about that going into the draft massive ones that, those have to be answered on a throw like that, and it's not just the only one. You talked, to, you sh- you put up four really good plays on Twitter for anyone who wants to see some just really good big arm to- arm talent throws. Obviously, the two balls to Ingram were great stuff, both outside outside shoulder, shoulder too, exactly. Man. Which is what the biggest thing for a quarterback on those deep throws is: can you put it on the outside shoulder? Because if you can't, it's intercepted. And so that's not a question mark for me. So I just feel like with that in mind, I don't I don't know how. Like I said, I don't want it to be completely taken out of the playbook, I know, but I, I would like it to be lessened for sure. The thing about mesh concept is that's a that's a very common man beater, and the, right, they're not and they're seeing not man. as yeah. much man. Yep. But it's also you can uh, incorporate mesh concept with zone beaters as well. So instead of the two, uh, the mush and the mosh, the the man under, the man over, the two crossing routes, two drag routes, uh, have you, if they. Uh, at the mesh point, they they go over top of each other and then they yeah, sit in yeah. the voided zone, which we've seen I think a couple times. I don't remember exactly what game this season. We definitely saw it in the Shermer system quite oh, a bit. Yeah. So you can implement that type of variation, and I'm a fan of the mesh con. I mean, with Shermer, it was all the time. It was mesh with a running back wheel route, yep. and then the number two receiver ran a deep snag, and uh, it was that. You saw that maybe two or three times every game. That was like their way of operating on quick And game. that's kind of the slant flat now with Garrett, it feels like. Somewhat, yeah. To I some mean, extent. D- d- totally different uh, types of concepts. They are completely yeah. different, yeah. just what his go-to is. And I feel like just my whole thing is with that concept, with like you said, the, the zone beaters against with the mesh, I feel like you're still the, – the receivers are moving in a direction that doesn't exactly as much tip things off of the defensive back. When you're running these stop routes, the receiver really has to do an excellent job, in my opinion, of selling it. Otherwise, the the, the, the whoever's guarding can literally just break right on because he has to turn his whole body around. Which we've seen Which too takes much, so yeah. much time to turn your body around. And this is a bang-bang sport, so when you're running straight and then you just turn your body around the stick route, it just feels a little different to me than when you're running the crosser and then you stop in the zone and you kind of yeah. use your savvy. And not to knock Evan Ingram either, but when you have a receiver like Evan yes. Ingram, those routes, they put you in a really dangerous situation because Evan Ingram is not sure-handed. He's not the best route runner. And if he gets hit, the ball gets popped up in the air, which we've seen, and that, then you have how many defenders towards the middle of the field. Another excellent point by you right there, Nick, because early in the game they used the stop route that worked with Shepard because Shepard runs a little bit of that, runs that route a lot better, honestly, than Ingram. So maybe it's just, and honestly, as I think back on these routes and the ones that have led to either interceptions or really almost interceptions, most of them have been Evan Ingram. Yes. So, I mean, that has to at least be considered. Yeah, and I, again, I don't want to knock Evan because I no, honestly, no. yeah, this is the best Evan Ingram game, oh, yeah. complete game I've seen maybe in his entire career. Without a doubt. Yeah. Oh, in his entire career? Um, 
this or Tampa last year. I, I don't really necessarily remember how good he was as a blocker, but him as a oh, blocker. Oh, block, you're right. He was really good as a blocker in this game. I put a, a tweet of like six of his run blocking plays, and I'm actually going to tweet one tomorrow morning that I missed. It was a cut block in space where I was like, holy crap. I was like, Evan Ingram gets out, locates, and he just cuts him. And then there was one play where he blocks Mackenzie Alexander like 10 yards down the field, and Mackenzie Alexander was so pissed off at him. And it's like, I know Mackenzie Alexander's a cornerback, but still, man, you like to see that. He was also doing it against Sam Hubbard. He sealed him off on a couple plays. So it was definitely very impressive. Now, I don't really – oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I was just going to say, I don't think he's going to become this tight end blocking kind of guy, but you still love to see that from this specific type of player with his frame. Yeah, ex- exactly. Just like you said, you still like to see him improving. You still like to see him working hard. He's always kind of worked hard at it, but you can still improve with your positioning. Mm-hmm. And you like even if he doesn't have the frame to ever be this great, this all-time great blocker or even like a plus-plus blocker, he can still improve based on body yeah. positioning and listening to the coaches and techniques. I actually thought what I noticed because I was focusing in, I saw an early really good rep from him, and then I started to focus in a little bit when I was rewatching some of the plays. Eighty-five, I thought had a really good game blocking. Levine Toilolo for him, and he hasn't been great this year blocking but obviously he was a bigger part of the game plan this week with Caden Smith out on COVID and maybe that's all it took maybe he just needed to be a little more engaged with the actual game plan and not just in for a few reps but I noticed him doing a decent job at the very to say the very least as a blocker in this game yeah he played 39 uh, snaps so out of the 81 snaps and it was also funny too because without Caden Smith they didn't have any other tight ends they used Eli Penny out there and Eli Penny actually played Y tight end like the end tight end he actually had one really nice block where he sealed the defend the end man on the line of scrimmage off and then he had the block I put on Twitter that he actually retweeted shout out to Eli Penny where he absolutely killed a linebacker he just goes through the hole hits the linebacker and then just drives him back probably about like five yards until the linebacker just gets completely pancaked it was very very a good amount of plays on yeah. this tape where you looked at it, and not just from like the Toilolos and the Pennies and the skill guys, from the linemen. Oh, and geez. we'll get to the Ooh. line. There's a lot to talk about on this offensive line, but there were like a legit amount of plays where you watch the Giants' offensive line manhandling and throwing these Cincinnati Bengals defenders to the ground, and you think, who the hell am I watching? <laughs> when did I watch? When did I start following? analyzing and breaking down and watching a team that plays with this kind of physicality throws and ragdolls defenders to the ground and is literally just beating people up at the point of attack through the whistle andrew thomas had one or two like you said gates we'll have to talk about gates because we're getting to a point where the conversation with gates is evolving from like is he the starting center next year to wait a second, is he one of the best linemen on this team? And, like, did the Giants find an unbelievable value in undrafted free agency? And then, not only that, but make the unbelievable decision to re-sign him before the season for incredibly cheap and now have that under contract for Like, there are going to always be those those flaws, like you said, when, when he's lined up against a really good nose. But having said that, I mean... Well, do you want to get into that now? I guess we could yeah. get into that now. Nick Gates, this was his best game of the season, right? Easily. Easily. Nick Gates, from a run-blocking perspective and from a pass-blocking perspective, was absolutely great. And he was helping out Shane Lemieux, and he was helping out Will Hernandez, who was also playing well at the same time. I mean, there were several times where Nick Gates just flat-out put people on their back. There was one where he picked up a stunt, nailed the guy, guy fell on his back. There was one where he pulled out into space on one of the counters, located this poor defensive back, and absolutely drilled him, and then just ran right up to Jesse Bates' face and just put his helmet right into Jesse Bates' face and started talking crap for whatever reason. So Nick Gates, man, I, I just... every. 
every podcast we basically say you love his competitive toughness you love his grip but you also start to see how smart he is at the same time now we're not really behind the line of scrimmage per se to see how they're setting protections and doing all those things but we haven't seen many blown protections recently and if there was an extra man if they brought a sixth man and he wasn't accounted for daniel jones has done a very good job throwing hot now him and golden tate did this in uh in this game for like a five or six yard gain where we had that's kind of speaks to daniel jones we didn't really see that as much last year you know that extra blitzer comes and he just gets absolutely annihilated this year the offensive line now i'm not sure how much gates has to do with that but they're accounting for these extra rushers and jones and the receivers are on the same page and that's a testament to these wide receivers guys like golden tate don't uh, probably get the credit that they deserve because he's usually the slot receiver he's the one who has to throw hot and that happened in this game as well but back to nick gates phenomenal in terms of location at the second level in terms of generating power through his hips through his core and just imposing his will on these cincinnati defenders this entire game this was by far his best game and and you're right and i tweeted something about it too just a compilation of some of his best reps from the game in both pass and run i think there was like a two maybe like two reps where he went up against the nose and he didn't seem like he was a liability either in those certain things i always do think that's going to be somewhat of a struggle i think puna ford next week might give him a little bit of trouble i don't think he's going to be a liability but puna ford's five foot eleven three hundred and what twenty pounds and Nick Gates is six foot five. Now there's going to be a natural leverage, and Puna Ford plays nose tackle. But with that said, Gates is really coming along uh, this year, and I, I do feel like he could be a long-term solution at center. Yeah, I mean, as you watch more tape on Nick Gates, the narrative is and should be changing. Mm-hmm. He's no longer. I mean, it's tough to say if he is or if he's not a liability. Going to, going to be a liability against some of these noses. That'll be an interesting matchup next week. But like you said, it hasn't been blatant. The key thing here is what you brought up, two of the key things here, and I have them both written in my notes. The mental side is just unbelievable. It's unbelievable to me how Nick Gates basically learned this position in one offseason. Speaks to him. Essentially. I mean, he was taking some reps down the stretch last year, not much. And yet there's very few mental breakdowns. There's very few of these communication issues that lead to sack. And more importantly than that, you con- if you watch the tape of this Giants team, you constantly see pass blocking reps where Gates is locating and helping his two guards, where he's blocking off or he's doing a good job of staying on one defender until he needs to come off the other and help with the block. Because when you play next to Shane Lemieux right now, you're going to have to help on like two to two to four reps per game. You're going to have to help because Lemieux is going to get beat pretty early. Yeah, nothing more uh, more so than 41 seconds oh, left yeah. in the second quarter. Shane Lemieux, and I'm not, we're not sitting here bashing Shane Lemieux. We know what Shane Lemieux is. We feel like we've done a good job kind of displaying and uh, just articulating what he is. But he gets beat really bad off the line of scrimmage by number 97. And if it wasn't for Nick Gates being aware of it, Daniel Jones gets cracked on this play or he throws a pick or something bad happens. But Nick Gates sees it out of the corner of his eye because he's initially helping out Kevin Zeitler just on a quick little chip block because Kevin Zeitler's defender's closer to him. But he sees it and he has the athletic ability to push off that outside foot and get just enough of 97 to put him on the ground before he can get to Daniel Jones. That's a big time play from Gates. Big time play. And you talked earlier about his ability to locate at the second level as a run blocker and that's kind of been there to me this whole season but the pass blocking is what's really coming along and earlier this offseason we discussed how there were still a few too many snaps where Gates was on the ground that's kind of non-existent in these last few games he is not falling he's not on the you don't see him end up on the ground on a lot of these reps at all so really good stuff here from Gates I'm starting to really think big time things but I want to keep it on the offensive line and transition here 
to the left guard debate. But before we do that, because there's a lot I want to say there, but before we do that, let's take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. 2020 has already reshaped how we work, and it's almost over. Businesses across the globe are challenged to be their most efficient, which means every hire is critical. Indeed is here to help. Indeed is the number one job site in the world with more total visits than any other job site, according to Comscore. Indeed helps you find quality candidates quickly, so you can focus on hiring the person you need to keep your business going. Unlike other sites, Indeed gives you full control and payment flexibility over your hiring. You only pay for what you need. You can pause your account at any time, and there are no long-term contracts. And now, Indeed's new way of matching you with candidates instantly delivers a short list of quality candidates whose resumes on Indeed match your job criteria that you can contact the moment you sponsor a job, making Indeed the only job site that can move as fast as you do. Right now, Indeed is offering our listeners a free $75 credit to boost your job post, which means more quality candidates will see it fast. Try Indeed out with a $75 credit at Indeed.com slash BlueWire, all one word. This is their best offer available anywhere. Go right now to Indeed.com slash BlueWire, all one word. Offer valid through December 31st. Terms and conditions apply. Football is back in full swing, and you might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at Bet Online. Bet Online is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on every possible chance to win this season. From game spreads and totals to team, player, and coaching props, Bet Online gives you more options to wager than anywhere else. You can get in on their season opening bonuses today and start off wagering on wins, divisions, and championship futures all day every day. Head to Bet Online online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Don't forget to use promo code BlueWire at BetOnline.ag. That's BlueWire, all one word. Bet Online, your online sportsbook experts. All right, now that you've been serenaded with Nick's ad read voice you have to come back to this nasally voice of mine and you're gonna have to like it because i got a few things to say about this whole left guard situation with the new york football giants so i just went back and spent the last 70 minutes we're supposed to record this podcast 70 minutes earlier nick probably hates me for this decision but i'm glad i did it because i learned a lot just re-watching the offense and focusing on the offensive line and shout out to stan McCune on twitter who asked us to spend a little more time on the offensive line I think we are going to. There's a lot to talk about. This was probably the best game of the season. I mean, there were some unbelievably clean pockets. But as I went back and I rewatched the game and just focused specifically on the offensive line every snap, I don't at all see how the Giants, and I'm not a coach. I know way less about this game than a lot of people. I learn day after day. I've learned a lot from doing this podcast now for two years from both Knicks, Turchin and Filato, and I will continue to learn. But I don't personally see how the coaches could watch this tape and decide that Shane Lemieux should come out as the starter or the guy who takes double the snaps, or I think it was close to triple the snap, or no, it was more like double the snaps of Hernandez this next game. It should be flipped, if anything, but personally, I would just have Hernandez as the full-time starting left guard for the rest of the season based on what I've seen this game. I think he proved that COVID is no longer an issue. What it comes down to for me is this. You hear a lot about this narrative that Hernandez is the worst run blocker than Shane Lemieux. 
And for a while, I kind of subscribed to that myself because I hadn't seen Hernandez play for a few weeks, and Shane Lemieux was doing a good, excellent job in the run game. But in this game, Hernandez has multiple plays where he does an excellent job in the run game. On second and 10, a play that doesn't work because they're running it with Alfred Morris, which I still don't understand. They run a, sw- they run a sweep out of shotgun with, Hernan- with, with Morris, and Hernandez pulls here, gets out to the edge, and destroys a defensive back. There's also a play earlier in the game, I believe, where he, or I'm sorry, later in the game, I believe, where he comes out across on a pole and traps down the defensive end and takes him out of the play and allows the play to happen. So he's moving well in space. He did good job on some of the double teams in the run game. And then when it comes to pass protection for me, and I don't see how it's just for me, like if I'm literally the coaches watching this film and that's what they're paid to do and that's what they do do, I don't see how you can even compare these two guards in pass protection. Nick said it best. We were talking off pot about this. Nick said it best. I'm trying to, you know, think of the word to describe why Hernandez is so much better in pass protection than Shane Lemieux. And it's balance. It's literally balance. Shane Lemieux has two to three reps per game where he's completely off balance and gets beat immediately. Hernandez has really good feet and he still has that he has that thick base that you would expect to be kind of more useful in the run game. But when you com- when you combine it with his nimble feet and just that base, the balance is always there for him in pass pro, and it just looks so much better. And it's not just that it looks better. It is actually better. It was much better in this game. And I assume going forward in this season, they will have much better pass protection with Hernandez in the lineup and basically the same run blocking. Yeah, the thing about Shane Lemieux too, I feel like he's been susceptible to the quick moves. Defensive linemen with quick hands who kind of get up on him really quick and then hit him with a combination of moves. So like a club and a swim or a swat and a swim or something along those lines. Those kind of where he's struggled a bit. With Will Hernandez, I feel like from the snap, he kind of gets up and into his posture really quickly, and he's not as susceptible as Shane Lemieux. I think it's it's definitely easy that Hernandez is far further along than Shane Lemieux in terms of being a pass protector. I don't really think that's a debate as of right now. So the thing I'm thinking about is why Shane Lemieux starting? Is this because does this coaching staff feel like Shane Lemieux is going to be the long-term answer and they don't have long-term plans for someone like Will Hernandez? Could that be it? I'm not really sure. I'm not saying that's what I believe, but it just makes me think of other reasons why Shane Lemieux is starting. Now, I don't think Shane Lemieux is a liability either. I think he's coming along. I think he's doing a better job, but he still has one or two reps every game. It's not six or seven like it was in the first two games in pass protection where you could see those struggles. And thankfully, Nick Gates is usually there to assist him or clean up some of his mistakes, which is something that Nick Gates has done. But I'm guessing just because they've had so much continuity along the offensive line through those three games and Mark Colombo wasn't there, they maybe didn't want to bring Will Hernandez in right away because they've had success with that. So they sprinkled him in, see how he fit in, and now you have a new coach. You kind of want the, the, during this playoff push, you want this offensive line to really be, the word I love to use, cohesive. So maybe that's why, because Shane Lemieux was a part of that original group, even though you and I kind of don't believe it was because Shane Lemieux, we think it was a confluence of things, which I still subscribe to, I'm sure you do as well. But maybe that's why Shane Lemieux played double the snaps. But I do agree, I think we should see more of Will Hernandez because he is a better pass protector overall than Shane Lemieux at this juncture. Yeah, and I want to make it clear I think this is more in line of it's a good problem to have yes. rather than this is one way or another. The Giants are going to str- – they're making a bad decision. Well, I mean, not to say that. I do think they would be making a poor decision, at least from what I've seen, to play Lemieux over Hernandez. But I think it's more in line with it's a good problem to have because Lemieux has been improving. Now, to me, I don't know if I attribute 
what I see in pass pro more to Shane Lemieux being, you know, Will Hernandez being further along with more NFL reps or more to just natural pass blocking ability due to what they are as prospects. I don't know if Shane Lemieux is ever going to be this guy. He can improve. Like you said, it's not six reps a game. It's two or three reps a game, which is huge. If it was six reps a game, he would have been benched by now already. But Hernandez to me in pass pro, I mean, it, it might be the mental thing. Maybe, you know, they think like, he doesn't have it as much mentally which I don't know if is the case with Hernandez I don't really know what it is it could also be weird things like it could be a work ethic thing it could be a work ethic thing there could be it could also be a weird thing like people don't understand this but or I'm not saying people don't understand this I think what maybe sometimes gets underreported or underappreciated or not considered at all even though it should be is that Hernandez might not be drawing the you know best light of the coaching staff what it yes it might not be his fault it might be his fault we don't know we're not behind the scenes we don't know it could be what nick said that lack of work ethic could just be that he doesn't strike me as that though either no he definitely doesn't strike me as that so i don't know but it is odd when you watch this tape like it will be odd to me at least if the next game will hernandez plays again like 25 snaps and the other dude plays and lemieux plays like 50 compared to the 25 just from what i saw because that was one of my big focuses and i just don't see it at all i don't think they're even on the same plane as a pass blocker so it's and and i don't think and you know it would be one thing if lemieux was like this lights out run blocker who's light years ahead of hernandez but hernandez looked really good in the run game i thought like definitely fine like he may not be I would say that Shane Lemieux may have a little bit more to him for some reason, even though it's weird, because we all thought Hernandez was going to be this all-world run blocker when he was at UTEP, but it simply hasn't really surfaced to that level, at least. But it's not enough to make up for the pass blocking, at least for me. And it's also funny, too, because in this game... I thought Shane Lemieux actually had a couple reps where I was like, wow, look at him. He's staying directly in front of the pass rusher. He's not allowing him to establish the half man, things that we've kind of seen kind of go against him. But then there was the rep that Nick Gates really had to save him. And there was a couple other ones where you're like, I could have done that better technique wise, uh, balance wise, leverage wise, hand placement wise. But just in general, I do feel like he's coming along. But there was a couple, though, and I'm sure you saw it too, where he was gliding with the guy. His yep. feet looked pretty good. But then you watch Will Hernandez, and you see 71 out there, and you're like, oh, okay. Like, that's that's something that we haven't seen in a while. Kevin Zeitler does it all the time, though. Yes. Zeitler's Zeitler. So he gets a lot of appreciation from this podcast, and I feel like it's very well warranted. Oh, without a doubt. And like I said, just to be clear, so make sure people hear it for a second time. <laughs> this is a good problem to have. Lemieux has, one, been improving without a doubt. Two, it's only a couple, two, three reps a game, but I feel like it's almost close to zero with Hernandez. It honestly is. At least this game, it was zero. He only had 26 reps. Maybe if he has more, we'll see more of those. But like you said, it's, or like we're kind of getting at, it's a good problem to have because it means the Giants have a lot of depth. And this game was close to flawless by this offensive line. There was a rep later in the game when McCoy was in where uh, McCoy on a third and long, which is the hardest situation in the game, not only to pass protect, but to find a solution to move the, the sticks. And when you have Colt McCoy in, like, I was sure when I was watching the game live, this wasn't going to be a successful play. And then it was. He hit Tate for, I believe, 13 yards on a third and nine, I believe it was. The pass blocking, the pocket that McCoy had on this snap. And for those of you following along, on game pass this was third and eight at the new york giants 14 with 603 remaining in the third quarter really a pivotal down to just run some clock to gain back fuel position for you know the rest of the game they don't want to be backed up here punting and the pocket on this play i mean the Bengals rush four it's not like they're rushing three they rush four and they're just literally nowhere near the quarterback mccoy is able to just 
hang, 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 step, and throw the out to Golden Tate for the first down. And it's just not the best throw. It's an okay throw. But it's so hard to find these kind of solutions on third and long. And it's so hard to find these kind of pockets in past giant seasons last season 2018 2017 2016 2015 2014 go all the way back i don't know to 2009 to see the pockets that colt mccoy and daniel you'd have to go all the way back to see the pockets that colt mccoy and daniel jones had in this game hey dan read read this in my notes what does it say hot pockets hot freaking pockets these were some really hot pockets here what's your take on hot pockets Oh, the food? The food, yeah. Uh, that would, that would, Trash food, right? Not, not a fan, no. So I'm sorry to any of you who eat those things or are going to be offended by this. And I, I don't know if maybe at some point in your life you needed to have Hot Pockets because we've all been there from financial standpoint. At some point, we've been grinding along our journeys. But Hot Pockets is trash food. I mean, that shit yeah, is disgusting. Yeah. And there has literally never been one experience I've had with Hot Pockets where I haven't burnt the roof of my mouth so and ruined I, the rest of my week. When I was a kid, I, I had like I had Hot Pockets when I was a kid, right? And I remember one time... I, I cooked it and I thought I cooked it enough and it wasn't and I bit into it and it was frozen <laughs> oh, and it was such a bad experience that like I, I mean I just never really went back to them thankfully that That's I don't like a have to go meat. back they for put them. like a mystery meat in there it's like oh chicken pepperoni eh, I don't know if that's chicken <laughs> let's get Dan started on his subway tramp. but uh, no not, not this podcast not this podcast but back to the hot pockets when we're talking about the New York Giants this entire game Dan there were just pockets Daniel Jones had time to step up Colt McCoy had time to step up all of the blocking was just so in sync with each other. They were working together, and it was just a great thing to see. Andrew Thomas was pretty damn solid on the edge. Cam Fleming wasn't a total liability when he wasn't holding people. It, it was it was definitely a great sight to see. Now, again, let's keep this into context, into perspective, that this is the Cincinnati Bengals. But if you would have told me six weeks ago that we would be raving about the pocket of the New York Giants, I would have told you you were insane. So this, this is a great thing. is the most unexpected. This game on All-22, the play of the offensive line in this game on All-22 is one of the most unexpected things I could have predicted for this Giants team at any point before this before the start of the offseason. I did think there would be improvement on the offensive line, but I did think that a rookie offensive tackle would struggle a bit. I wasn't sure where I was at fully with Hernandez I certainly wasn't sure where I was going to be at with Gates in the center position and then at right tackle it was like eh, who knows what's going to happen there and just when you consider what's on this offensive line I mean they've made investments obviously Thomas obviously Hernandez and then Zeitler to some extent even though they got him in my mind on the cheap because he was almost like a throw-in in that Beckham deal with Vernon kind of Vernon Zeitler even though it was all honestly one deal it was Zeitler the pick, the two, the two picks, top 100 pick, I think it was 99, Ziminen's pick, 17, Lawrence, and Jabril Peppers, all just for Beckham and Vernon, which, again, amazing trade, honestly. Cleared a salary cap, too, there, man. Cleared so much cap. Vernon's disgusting cap they cleared, um, even though he had one good game this season, the one against the Eagles, but he's just a disaster. He's always hurt. And yet, going in, I never thought that that group could have this kind of just purely dominant performance. And again, it is the Bengals. They traded away Carlos Dunlap. They haven't added talent to that front seven in years. They've just been drafting offensive players. How dare you disparage Sam Hubbard? Sorry. <laughs> yeah, except for Sam Hubbard. Shout out Ohio State, even though I'm not an Ohio State fan. And I don't want to talk too much college because we'll get another one star from Kwame <laughs> Zilla or something like that. Um, but I just never thought I'd see a game like this where they're just so dominant in pass blocking and in run blocking, and it was just awesome to see. If you want to transition there before we kind of talk more 
plays and offensive concepts. There's other things I want to discuss outside the offensive line, but I do want to talk a little Andrew Thomas. What did you see there? I, I see steady improvement there. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think you could see just from his posture. He has tighter elbows. His shoulders are back a little bit more. I feel like he can be susceptible sometimes when he puts his head down and his balance kind of uh, gets off kiltered a little bit when he does that, but that's not consistent anymore. It used to be a very consistent thing. Now he has solid foot cadence. His footwork is kind of much better than it's been. Strike timing, strike placement has been a lot better. I mean, in the beginning of the year, you saw him kind of just flail his arms out there, try to make contact, always allow the defender to get into his chest to kind of dictate the next move. You don't see that as much now. You really don't. Carl Lawson is a pretty solid pass rusher. He's no scrub. Okay, kid from Auburn a couple years ago had a couple devastating injuries in college. He's a solid pass rusher, plays with good leverage, has good bend and flexibility through his hips. Really good long arm move that I remember him employing throughout that draft process when I was studying him. And I thought he did a good job kind of uh, just eliminating him from this game, not allowing a pressure. There were a couple reps where you could see Carl Lawson, if he had another split second or two, he was probably going to win, but he didn't have that split second or two. So he chalked that up as an Andrew Thomas win. But just in general, you could see the confidence that he's playing in game in and game out. He's being trusted on an island and he's succeeding on this island. Yeah, and you know, it, it is extremely hard to, to block on the island. That's what they drafted him to do. And I think it's so I'm so happy that it made me smile when you when you said one thing during your evaluation because it was what I had bolded in my notes and what I kept seeing and what I think is the biggest difference for me when I watched Thomas and when I focused in on that second rewatch. It's the hand placement. That, to me, has just starkly improved from earlier in the season. And it's not perfect yet, but it is so much better than where it was at. And it's so interesting why, like, how was it ever there where it was at the beginning of the season? I don't know if it was a confidence thing or if he was just, like, too quick to let the defender get in on him first. But the hand placement has been so much better and the punch has been so much better. And it's making such a difference with him now, I think, in these past block reps. And I don't know if he's really like at that elite level. He's not at the elite level of like Tristan Wirfs, obviously. I mean, everyone who watches Wirfs is raving about him for good reason. But at the same time, I think he's at this point getting to the point of where he's not too far behind any of, besides Wirfs, who you can put in a level, a clear cut of his own. When it comes to Becton or Wills, of what at least what they've put on tape so far this year, he's not clear cut too far behind them anymore. At least these three games, sample size. Obviously, you can't put the whole thing in there because yeah. like the first seven games were an absolute disaster from Thomas. But over these last three games, I think it's fair to say he's on that same level of those guys he's, at the very worst. He's doing much better. Another thing that he's been doing a lot better than what he did earlier in the year is this: how he handles these counter moves. And if you see like. When he, when he takes on contact, when he gets his arms inside, I feel like he does a good job with his hand strength, kind of getting inside and grabbing, which which you can do, you know what I mean? Bringing, bringing that defender somewhat yeah. tight to him or keeping him at bay, doing whatever he has to do. But he also resyncs his hips upon contact pretty solidly to where it, it, it doesn't allow him to get off balance like he used to do. He's able to kind of absorb that contact, resync his hips, reestablish his position, and then just glide with his feet to kind of keep that pass rusher in front of him and even up the arc. So it, he's come a long way in these last three games. Now we just got to keep seeing that progress, and then we got to see him do it against some better pass rushers. And that's that's kind of what we're hoping for Andrew Thomas, but he's miles better than what he was just a few short weeks ago. Without a doubt, Nick, and it's just awesome to see. And I think it's time at this point to give a shout out to Jason Garrett for his consistent success on the scripted opening drives. If you look at this team, 
they have found so much success on these opening drives and that is a testament to the coach for those who you, of you who don't know I know some of you have contacted me or Nick on Twitter and said you know we're kind of learning the game through you some mostly guys from other countries which is awesome who are kind of newer to football and you know loving it for the reasons we love it because it's a big chess match it's 11 on 11 chess game um, game of chess and with that said what we mean by that is the opening drives for all of these offensive teams and offensive coordinators are scripted. Before the game, the offensive coordinator comes out with a script. It's not adjusted based on the game or anything like that, or it's just a script that he comes out with. And if you look back this season, the Giants have found a lot of success on their opening drives. And that's a testament in my mind to Jason Garrett, a guy who, you know, I'm not super high on. I don't think the Giants have found themselves anything close to like a Patrick Graham, who I can't wait to talk about on the next podcast because I have some some cool things I want to get into with you, Nick, about what Graham did in this game specifically. Yeah, I love how Jason Garrett is establishing the run on these open scripts. And then the second pass play that he did when he was in a passing situation, a second and six, after a four-yard Wayne Goldman run, he does what we've been kind of asking him to do. It's like he's listening to the podcast, Dan. Mm-hmm. He runs a four-vert concept with all – it's all from a tight formation. So you have all the skilled position players, every player's in – side of the numbers okay so nobody's in plus splits outside of the numbers and they run out breaking routes and then up so out and up with two seam balls in the middle of the field so this is a four vertical type of play something that daniel jones has thrown really really well now none of it really kind of came to fruition on this play so it was just a little check down pass to wing gallman for another four yards but you love to see the aggressiveness there and you love to see that Jason Garrett's obviously watching this film. He's obviously seeing what Daniel Jones has success with. So now he's implementing it specifically into his opening script to try to get a big play. Yeah, and then one play later, literally on the third and two, you see Jones do an excellent job of kind of working with Evan Ingram at the line of scrimmage, noticing the single high safety look that the Bengals are showing with literally everyone else lined up at the line of scrimmage and audible and Ingram into this vertical route, then at the pawn upon the snap, using his eyes to manipulate the safety and keep him to that other side of the field before flipping his hips back and throwing that beautiful deep pass to Ingram. And honestly, in this game, we gave Jones credit earlier, and I want to talk a little bit more about Jones. I counted four before he went out. So remember, again, this was basically only a half of football. He played four minutes, I think, of that second half, the opening, their first drive in that second half, and, you know, he drove him all the way down, then got hurt. But I noticed four times where he took command at the line of scrimmage, changed something up, made a little bit of an audible or a check at the line of scrimmage. And on three of those plays, it led to something seriously, a big successful play. And the only one it didn't was the play we talked about before, that four-yard check down to Gallman that where I think he might have even checked that at the line of scrimmage because it was a good final check to have that. But this was really good stuff from Jones, I think, somebody who's starting to really process better before the snap based on you know and again this is more of a pre-snap read of course by jones but you still have to make it all work in session the timing has to be right for the throw you have to manipulate the safety with your eyes and you have to kind of get the tight end on the same page as what you're thinking before the snap yeah it's a pre-snap look for sure and what he's doing he's setting that protection up and he's also having the contingency plan to throw hot to one of those receivers in a bunch and on that play that third and two 12 19 in the first quarter Again, everybody's inside the numbers. These are tight alignments. But what that offers in man coverage, if you win the outside release, which Evan Ingram does, you have from the numbers to the sideline to run away. And that just creates more space from that middle of the field safety that Jones looks off, creating even more space. So this play is set up for Evan Ingram, and he does a fantastic job winning this release. He sets up inside with the jab step, fires his feet, and then just attacks the outside hip, and he just stacks the 
corner or the corner it's actually a safety stacks von bell and picks up another like 15 yards after the throw and catch that's a fantastic play by evan ingram it's a fantastic play by daniel jones and i love to see daniel jones talking with the offensive line helping set protections being on the same page with his wide receivers and his center and the rest of that offensive line putting Dion lewis or wayne gallman whoever that uh, running back was, right in front of him to pick up that double A-gap blitz if that double A-gap blitz end up coming. Right. He has all of those things checked, and he's getting it all done while the clock is running down, gets that playoff before it strikes zero, and then fires a beautiful pass. There's so much that goes into every single play, pre-snap, post-snap. We always talk about this on this podcast, and this is a shining example of what a successful play looks like from every facet for Daniel Jones. Yeah, the safety literally takes two steps the wrong direction after the snap based on where Daniel Jones uses his eyes to manipulate him. And in addition to that, it brings up something that I think is so true. Evan Ingram is such a better, so much better of a route runner on these vertical routes. This is his game. Let's not use him as much on the stop routes, please. <laughs> Jason, please. I, if you are listening to the podcast, and that's why you decided to use more for four verts early on in the game and until Jones left the game, do us a favor. Use Ingram a little bit more vertically and, and take out the stop routes with Ingram because that's not his game at all. I think Ingram's actually not bad on the crossers as far as route running goes. or It just kind of works in his like skill set a little bit better. But just those stop routes, man, he doesn't sell them well. and he's he, I just don't like him on those. And vertically here, like you said, this is... Part of this play, part of the reason this play works is all on Evan Ingram's release off the line of scrimmage, and that's route running right there. That's what we talk about with Darius Slayton all the time. Yeah, he wins cleanly, like we said, man. He just fakes the inside, gets Von Bell to bite, and then boom, just jolts outside. You'll love to see it from Evan because he definitely needs it. After that drop in Philadelphia, he was the, you know, persona non grata, just get him out of town kind of player. And now he's definitely coming up big. And like I said, I think this was the most complete game he's had in a while, maybe ever, especially in terms of being a run blocker because he did really well there too. Yeah, without a doubt. I want to talk about something else I thought was interesting in this game and kind of goes in line with what we discussed earlier, but also the theme of this game, which was winning at the point of attack. There was a play second and 10 from the Giants' own 10-yard line with 235 left in the first quarter when you're backed up in your own end zone i would say or you know from the 10 or you know or shorter let's say you're in your own inside your own 10 yard line these are such key critical games plays in the game oftentimes you can these can lead to really bad negative plays or just situations where you have to punt from within your own end zone and you lose the field position battle and i thought this was so interesting here because the giants ran the football here on this play and shout out to michael rossi uh, one of our followers on Twitter and a good good friend of the show who kind of pointed this one out on Twitter. Obviously, we watch it on tape as well. But I thought, for me, why it was such a good example of a play that's kind of dictating what the Giants have started to become, this physical team that can win the point of attack, even when you're tipping, is because you're essentially tipping the run here. You're in 12 personnel. One of those guys is Ingram on the line of scrimmage. I would consider that 11 plus instead of 12 when Ingram's on the <laughs> 11 line. 11 and a half. 11 and a half personnel. But the Bengals literally are playing single high, and that one safety is playing at 10 yards depth. They're literally setting up to stop the run. When you're playing single high and your safety starts to creep up into the box where he's at like 10, he's between like 10 and 12 yards depth by the time the play is snapped. And by the way, there's nine guys in the box. It's not just this single high safety is playing single high and somewhat close to the line of scrimmage. There's nine guys in the box, and yet, despite all this, the Giants are able to run the football here on an obvious rundown, second and ten, 
and get yardage here to set yourself up for a first down. It is an awesome play, and this is double teams at the second level. You can break this one down, Nick, like how this works, but like this is nine guys in the box on an obvious rundown, and the Giants turn it into a first down play. It's crazy. Yeah, it was a, it was a great thing to see. Now, the, the Giants are in shotgun right here, and Wayne Gallman is actually offset to the strength, and it's a strong side run. So usually you see those types of shotgun runs go to the other side of the line of scrimmage. But this one, Wayne Gallman takes it and just hits it right off the gut, right off the butt of Levine Toy Lolo and Andrew Thomas, who take that five technique and just drive him six yards off the ball. And Evan Ingram, credit to him, he takes the cornerback, number 21, I think it's Mackenzie Alexander, who he kind of owned all game, and drives him about six yards off the ball. And then Mackenzie Alexander definitely was very angry with him after the play, gave him a nice little shove as well. It was actually pretty funny to see. But, uh, <laughs> but it's really what is going on on the left side of the line. You got Will Hernandez, who easily handles the one technique, eliminates him, and then Andrew Thomas, Levine Toilolo, totally take out that five technique, climb to second level, locate the linebacker, and then Evan Ingram dominates his guy. And then it's Wayne Gallman just finding the hole and trugging yep. his legs forward. Doing what Wayne Gallman does best. And Sterling Shepard was the wide receiver who was motioned kind of to be an H-back behind Evan Ingram, and he did a really good job just kind of taking the blitzing Von Bell and just kind of guiding him away from the rusher's path. And I also put up a little uh, crackback block that he had on on Twitter, and it was just phenomenal. He's definitely, that's something we don't talk about enough, is Sterling Shepard's ability to block in the run. And I think that's a huge part of his game that doesn't really get acknowledged. But this is like the third week in a row that I've kind of been paying attention to it, where he has one or two plays where you're like, wow, that play got them an extra six yards. And that's huge, the wide receiver who is willing to do that. Yeah, without a doubt. That's something that no one talks about but the coaches and his teammates. They always talk mm-hmm. about. And this is easy to see when you watch the film. It doesn't get unnoticed. Everything that these guys put on tape that's not on the broadcast is seen by the coaches and is viewed by coaches. It goes back to my whole Hernandez-Lemieux thing, but we'll have to see moving forward what happens there or if there's weird stuff going on behind the scenes for why Lemieux's playing more than him. But a couple other loose ends I wanted to talk about on this podcast with you and try to see what your take is. I love it sucks that it happened and he got hurt on this play the play Daniel Jones got hurt on, but I freaking love the play design by Jason Garrett on the seven-yard run where Jones got hurt on. It's first and 10. You're Jason Garrett. You're the Giants. You want to control the point of attack. You want to be a team that runs the ball for yardage and to get yourself in easier second-out situations. Here's a great way to do it. Go out of the gun, motion back, or move your running back to the right. Have him motion so you're basically looking, showing pro-snap look like an empty set, and then run a QB draw. This was awesome to see. This was creative by Garrett. This was interesting by Garrett. It's confusing for the defense because it looks at the part of the snap where there's no way this could be a run play. Daniel Jones snaps the ball, looks to his right to Gallman, who's in motion as if he's going to throw the ball to the flat to Gallman. So you're basically at this point showing this is a guaranteed pass play. And then you just take the ball and you run the QB draw. This could have been a massive play if the blocking was a little better or if Jones kind of planted his foot and hit the hole a little better, but mostly if just the blocking was a little bit better. But this is a guarantee in my mind for five to seven yards because literally every single second level defender vacates the box immediately post-snap as they just assume it has no chance of being a run play. It's a quarterback counter on this play. Yeah, so Wayne Gallman flares out to the to the flat and Daniel Jones opens his hips and you can see the safeties to that side. You can see the the end man on the line of scrimmage all play that. Now if you watch the 
the linebackers, they're reading their run keys. Yeah, they are actually. <laughs> the, I, as, as, yeah. as we run this playback, they are actually kind of reading their own plays. The linebackers are reading their run <laughs> keys, but Daniel Jones does a really good job actually utilizing yes. vision here. Now, he's supposed to run off the ass of the pulling guard and Levine Toilolo, but instead he cuts off the backside of Will Hernandez. And that's why the guy kind of comes off Will Hernandez's block because Will Hernandez yeah. was positioned to make a hole to the outside of him. But Daniel Jones does a really good job finding the hole inside of him because those linebackers scraped over the top of all the traffic to get to where the pullers were going. So that's a really good play by Daniel Jones, and it's so damn unfortunate. But you're right, man. Jason Garrett deserves credit for this type of play. This and is- I'll say this. like That's a great play by Jones. As we rewatch it, I kind of noticed what I, mistake I made originally there. But having said that, this play could work even better. There's are going to be times where those linebackers don't read those run mm-hmm. keys well, and he and those pullers get out ahead, and now he's running counter to the edge, and he has a huge hole, maybe to the point where it's like that Eagles play, where he houses it for a touchdown. This was, you're right, more Jones than anything with his ability to show off that impressive lateral agility. Remember, best three-cone time of any quarterback at the combine showing off that lateral agility former AAU basketball player, really good short area quickness, lateral agility type athlete. And he does make a really nice cutback to turn this into seven. If he just kind of runs into the butt of his guard, it's probably going to be a one-yard loss or maybe a one-yard <laughs> And game. ironically enough, you want to say, you don't want him doing that because he get, could get injured, you know, and then he gets then injured he gets during hurt. that, yeah. But I don't actually, you know, I've thought a lot about this, about the Jones injury, about where you want to be at with him. I think... That this is unfortunately, you know, because it could lead to injuries. This is how you have to use Daniel Jones. If he's your quarterback and you're going to pay him eventually to be your long term quarterback, or you're going to give him more years, which regardless of which one, if it's hopefully a combination of both, he gets the rest of his rookie deal and a new one. That's what we're all hoping for. I think he has to be this dual threat Josh Allen type quarterback because that's part of his skill set. It's part of what makes him more dynamic. It part it's part of what makes the run game more dynamic and it will lead to some injuries sometimes maybe it could injuries are a lot of luck though there's been so many plays over the first few seasons of Josh Allen's career where he could have gotten easily hurt on and he somehow avoided him I thought he literally had a season-ending injury last week against the Chargers it literally looked like a season ender and that was going to devastate me because I had him on my best fantasy team fantasy talk alert 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 Kwame Zilla alert alert (laughs) hopefully you did not hear that skip ahead if you did but and he didn't get hurt. So I think injuries are somewhat a lot of luck to me. And I'm not going to say just because Jones has been hurt twice already in his career, he's an injury-prone player or anything like that, or they should curtail the way they use him. I still think they have to use this full skill set. Yeah, I think you absolutely have to. You can't handle it with kid gloves. Now, granted, if he's injured, you could say he plays against Arizona or something, that's where you have to definitely change the offense up a yeah, little bit. That, yep. But if he's fully healthy, you have to utilize all this skill set because it's going to maximize your ability to win football games, and that's what the goal is. Yep, without a doubt. All right, let's tie up some more loose ends from our notes, one that we both had starred in both of our notes. This is an Andrew Thomas play. We didn't get to it in our O-line breakdown earlier on the pod, but we look back at the notes as we're going through this, and we're like, we cannot not mention this. So let's talk about second and 10 from the Cincinnati 36 with 37 seconds left in the first half. Maybe, arguably, Thomas's best rep of the game. It's up there for sure because there's a lot of different things he has to think about and execute on this play. So obviously Daniel Jones gets the ball and he's going up against Carl Lawson, Andrew Thomas, and Carl Lawson tries to hit him with that inside spin move, something A, that he struggled with mightily in the beginning of the year, and B, something that he has been also improving upon. So can he continue to do that in a high leverage situation, a second and 10, you're trying to drive down the field and either get in the field goal range because they're not quite there yet or put seven on the board. And Carl Lawson hits him with a pretty good inside spin move. And this is actually a stunt. So 
Andrew Thomas is probably in his mind. You're probably thinking he's saying, oh, Jesus, the inside spin move, I got to handle this. But he has the wherewithal to kind of notice, oh, wait, this is actually a stunt. So what he does is, and this is also credit to Shane Lemieux, he passes this stunt off. He handles the counter move excellently and then passes the stunt off right to Shane Lemieux and ensures Shane Lemieux has the transition. He doesn't just abandon him and kind of panic and go, oh, geez, this is a stunt. Where's the looper? No, he ensures that Lemieux has the stunt and then he pivots off of that outside or off of it off of his inside foot and locates the looper to just kind of shove him up the arc and absolutely eliminate him from the play it was a really really good rep from Andrew Thomas and Shane Lemieux but you can kind of see how he's not panicking within the rep you can kind of see how he would panic an earlier version of himself or somebody who just has struggled with this specific move in the past but he did not do that there's a lot of different things going into this play and he handled it fantastically yeah it was awesome stuff to see from thomas who's like we said continuously improving a couple other things i wanted to talk about with you they were so close on one play to being a really big play and i hope they come back to this one next week or in the coming weeks and it was the design screen for wayne gallman Mm. if andrew thomas holds his block just a little bit longer or if jones puts a little more touch on this ball he threw this one pretty flat in my mind now you can't put too much touch on it because then the linebackers and the second level guys can catch up but there is a certain level of touch and ball placement that leads to a big play or if thomas literally just holds his block a little bit longer so the end can't get on get his hands up this is a big one. There's so much green space ahead of them. So I really like the play design by Jason Garrett on this call. And I really thought that it's something that the Giants could come back to. It was second and six at the 50-yard line. For those of you following along on Game Pass, it was second and six at the 50-yard line with 11-13 remaining in the second quarter. I thought it was great timing for the screen call by Garrett. It perfectly countered what the Bengals threw at them. And if, again, Thomas holds this just a little longer before he gets out into space for blocks, or if Jones just puts a little bit, if he throws it a little less flat, then this is a big, big play for Gallman. Like, really big play. 20, 30, 40-yard type play. Yeah, it would have been huge because there were so many blockers in space here. And Andrew Thomas, it's not necessarily an indictment on him either because he's supposed to kind of let this guy go and then get to his position to lead block. It was just a really good play by the defender, Bledsoe, who I don't really know that much about. I don't think his name is Drew, if I'm not mistaken. I heard that guy played football in the the past, but it was a really good play by that guy. And it's definitely something I think we've seen it a couple times this year, if I'm not mistaken this kind of little throwback screen to Wayne Gallman. But the way this one was designed and the amount of space that he had in front of him, this could have been a huge 60-yard gain with all those blockers in front of him. Easily. And it would have been really funny to see those blockers trying to keep up with Wayne Gallman. So I really wanted to see that as well. It would have been fun to see them in space. I don't know how they would have got 60 yards from the 50-yard line, but uh, it could have definitely been been a 50-yard game. (laughs) Good point, good point. Maybe he would have just ran out of the back of the end zone like Tech Mobile. (laughs) Yes, exactly. You can get that. Counting those yards for Wayne Gallman. I want to give this man as many stats we can get. Yeah, I mean, you heard that woo from Nick. We're replaying it right now on our screen and just seeing the space out there. I mean, this was one of the better designed and blocked screens and counters to what the Bengals threw at the Giants that – you know, you'll see. One more loose end I want to tie up before we can get to anything you have. It was really interesting. And thir- a third and 15 play, like right when Colt McCoy came in the game, this was, uh, I believe it was right past 11, 7, or right in the third quarter, beginning of the third quarter, maybe past the, I don't have the time marker on this one, so it's somewhere around the 10 minute mark for those of you following along. But it's the first third down and long that Colt McCoy faced after coming in the game. This was the first yikes ball I had seen from a Giants quarterback in a long time. Because if you really think about the bad plays that Jones makes, 
very few of them are where he doesn't read in my mind at least this season especially very few have been where he just doesn't read the linebacker coming right down and Colt McCoy literally throws this ball right to the linebacker he's so lucky this thing wasn't intercepted in the red zone by the way they would have taken three points the Giants needed off the board but he just throws this he completely misreads the linebacker and I consider this a yikes ball we saw a lot of these I felt like it was more of it it just the only reason I'm bringing this up because it reminds me of more of a thing we saw with Eli misreading those linebackers underneath I don't see it as much with Jones and seeing this play kind of reminded me this is not a bad Jones thing also, it's a 2020 draft crush, Akeem Davis-Gaither, who almost made oh, this play. Oh, snap. Yeah. Our boy, yeah. the Big Blue Panther Podcast Sleeper of the Year, Akeem Davis-Gaither. Logan Wilson had a really good game, too. Yes. He was one of my favorite Another one of our guys. Yeah. They got a lot of our guys. He, he had draft. a play, Logan Wilson, where he, uh, he read the run really quick, and there was a double team set up with... I believe it was Andrew Thomas and Shane Lemieux, and Shane Lemieux was supposed to come off to pick up the linebacker. Once once a linebacker presents itself himself, that's where you kind of disengage from the double team and you locate him. Logan Wilson did such a good job diagnosing the play that he beat Shane Lemieux to the spot and blew up the run play. So I was like, yeah, that's, that's Logan you Wilson, remember baby. remember our off-season <laughs> podcast, Logan Wilson and Akeem Davis-Gaither, two of our favorite guys that we wanted the Giants to actually grab for that second level. They ended up getting Tate Crowder. Um, so we'll yeah. see what happens M- Mr. There. Irrelevant, though. I mean, those guys were just, oh, uh, yeah, day yeah, two picks. Totally different level. I mean, we'll talk more yeah. on the defensive podcast. And on, on that play, too, Dan, that third and 15, if you see, there was a ni- another stunt transition that went pretty well by Andrew Thomas, but not Shane Lemieux this time. It was Will Hernandez yes. who passes off the stunt, and then he does a really good job pushing off of his outside foot to ensure that he restricts any sort of inside rushing lane for that looper, picks him up. Handles a counter move, gets right back in front of him. Very good rep from Will Hernandez. A lot of really good reps in this game, in my mind, in pass protection from 71. Will Hernandez, who just always seems balanced and better there. So we'll see what happens moving forward. What else do you want to touch on? Anything else you want to clean up before we wrap up this pod and move on to the defense? Now, we got to get to the defense. There's a lot of great stuff. Yes. So, guys, make sure you download that podcast as well and listen, please. But, you know, I think uh, just in general, we saw this offensive line impose themselves. In a, in a very positive manner, skill position players I think we've covered, so I think we've done a pretty good job. If you want to talk a little bit about Colt McCoy, the one thing I will say is, yes, he looked like he was in over his head, but give him a week of practice. I don't think he's ever going to be somebody who could push the ball vertically. I think he's, his arm talent is very, very limited, but with all the first-team reps and a offensive game plan that's designed specifically for him, I think he'll look better. With that said, I am I'm not that confident going up against Seattle with Colt McCoy as a starting quarterback. No, it's a lot of, NFL is a lot about timing. And the Giants are actually running into Seattle's defense at a bad time. Carlos Seattle's, Dunlap's hurt though. Besides that Dunlap is hurt, mm-hmm. I don't think that's the only reason that they've looked better. I think it's helped, but I don't think it's the only reason. A lot of times as football fans it's kinda of like the Shane Lemieux thing. It's like, oh, if something comes to happen, we need one reason why things are happening. It's not always that. Yeah, Shaq Griffin coming back. Yeah, Jamal there was Adams a lot of Jamal back. Adams playing a lot better too. There's a lot of factors that are going into play there, but regardless of what it all is, we're catching them at a bad time. There was a stretch of the season where Seattle's defense was the worst in the NFL, basically. They're not right now. They're not right now. Uh, through these last two games now. To be fair, take, let's not take for granted they got to play the Eagles, which are one, it's arguably the worst, if not one of the five worst offenses in the NFL right now. Mm-hmm. It might actually be the worst offense in the NFL right now. I think right the, now. J- the Jets would be the one that— Fine, yeah. sorry. I forgot yeah. about the Jets. Yeah, yeah. The Jets are the worst everything. So besides the Jets, it's like the Eagles have— a, There's a legitimate case to be made the Eagles are one of the three or four worst offenses in the NFL right now. Honestly, outside the Jets, I, I can't I'm name one. I'm not sure you Because you, you point to Baker Mayfield and people like that say, yeah, but they can establish the run. they still run the ball yeah. way too it, well. And they do it so, so yeah, well. So well. They're not, they're not worse than 
the the Eagles are probably the second worst offense in the NFL Mike right Lennon now. Mike Glennon was slinging it exactly. So I wasn't <laughs> going to put the Jazz because Mike Glennon actually can move the football um, for some whatever reason. Mike Glennon, very, no idea why, no idea how that happened. B- basically, with the Eagles, the biggest problem right now is their offensive line is in, it's in a Giants level of disaster mode. You know those Giant seasons where our offensive line just turned into an absolute trash can that's kind of where the eagles are right now peters is well beyond his prime lane johnson's out for the year their interior is all messed up and it's all reserves anyway and they forget that like you can run the football which they in don't this game yeah. like that's something that is <laughs> part of the playbook because they yes. can act with kelsey they can actually get out and run block in space miles sanders and miles sanders but for some reason the eagles never did bad play calling and carson wentz total regression obviously played i mean carson wentz literally left 85 and i know this because i have him on my fantasy team he left 85 yards and two touchdowns on the field with dallas goddard just was simply terribly placed under throws he's a but good it, player though dallas, oh, goddard. dallas goddard's a really good player the giants have to worry about that dude a lot um but enough of the Eagles talk. So, again, the point of that was, though, the Seahawks did run into some kind of mediocre-ish offenses, I guess you could say, especially the Eagles is really bad. But I still think this defense is playing better football. So we'll have to see. But if I had to wrap up with a takeaway on McCoy is that I thought he threw the out passes a little better than I would have expected. He has a little bit on them. Um, completed a couple passes there. The placement was okay, not great, but it was something. It was at least there. Um, and we'll have to see. I think he'll be better with the week practicing i don't know what they're gonna do though like i don't think they've ruled out daniel jones yet i think it's gonna be a pain tolerance thing and i would lean i I see the look on your face already i mean i'm not i would lean towards jones won't be playing this game i think it's 75 percent, but i'm not so sure just yet let's see how it goes and i honestly don't think i'm crazy or being hyperbolic to think that a healthy daniel jones the giants kind of they, they have a shot in this game more than a shot. even on the road the eagles yes. were in that game in the second half they yeah. let i gotta be honest like i said the giants are catching the seahawks defense at the wrong time but they're actually catching the seahawks offense at the right time now i don't think it's going to hold up the entire game because the giants even going to be on the field so much because going to be so many three and outs in my mind for mccoy unfortunately um and again that's a factor of mccoy but i also think rightfully so the giants are going to have a conservative offense in the game because it's probably their best option so they don't turn it over and cost themselves a game but when you have that there's a ton of punts there's a ton of three and outs there's a ton of getting off the field and not and keeping your defense not on the putting your defense back on the field but i'll say this from watching that game against the eagles the seahawks offensive line has some really big issues right now they have injuries on their offensive line they have players playing hurt they had a backup, I think, right guard. They had the dude they blew that first round pick on. I don't never pronounce his name. Begins with an O. Beach or something. Oh, oh, Cedric Abwehi. Yeah. He was playing snaps. That's never a good sign. You never want that guy on the field. And uh, I Petty was playing hurt. He's also older. I mean, this is not the best offensive line they're facing. And I feel like their offense in general looked pretty sluggish in the second half. Obviously, there's Metcalf. The Giants are going to have to deal with that. They have Bradbury for that. And obviously, there's Russell Wilson. But there's still a team that likes to set up everything through their run game, at least when it's working well. The Giants have done a good job this year of shutting down the run for the most part. So I agree with you. I think if Jones was fully healthy, the Giants would have a decent chance to win this game. I think decent's fair. And I have another question for you. Chris Carson, top five running back in the league in terms of person you do not want to tackle. Yeah, <laughs> in terms of person you do not want to tackle. So Derrick Henry's one. Yes. That goes without saying. Who I think, like, this I think Zeke guy. would be one I do not want to tackle. Zeke, uh, I guess. I think for you me... You see what he did to Monte Casey? Yes. 
I would put Dalvin Cook up there. He's so freaking physical as a runner. Like he just Nick Chubb runs into people. See, the thing about Chris Carson that's crazy. Every time I Carson's watch him definitely in, up there, in yeah. space, I'm just like I wouldn't. I, wouldn't, I, know. <laughs> I would he, never want to get in that guy's way. In space. And remember, Chris yeah. Carson, undrafted rookie free agent. Yeah. Ding ding ding. You find these guys all the time, but that goes for another story for another day. We're not going to get into that second pick in the 2018 draft right now and the, where they use that capital. But again. Like Nick said, we'll have to see what happens. With McCoy, we obviously don't have the same kind of confidence we would have with Jones. But I'm really going to be interested to see Patrick Graham against Russell Wilson and DK Metcalfs. But more of that on the next podcast. And so for that note, this is us signing off on Big Blue Banter Podcast. But before we do, we would like to thank all of the loyal listeners who have actually taken the time to go to iTunes, rate, review, and subscribe to the show. We are now reaching close to that 400 rating mark we want to hit the 400 rating mark we're at 372 so we're 28 ratings and reviews away from hitting the 400 mark who's going to help us get there we need 28 of you listening to the podcast who haven't hit itunes yet to go on itunes give us a five-star rating write a little review if you do we'll shout you out on the next show any of these next 28 we will shout out i will shout out every single one of them i am an avid reader of our reviews dan, dan might actually do a podcast just shouting out the reviews, reviews. i did that I've, <laughs> I've thought about that at times i really have considered it so thank you to all of you who listen to the podcast i really do mean that and for everyone else who wants to follow us and help us out check out ny big blue banter that's ny in front of our name big blue banter on instagram because there's some really awesome stuff going on there as well otherwise we'll have a great rest of your week and we'll see you soon or talk to you soon on the defensive podcast everyone is talking about magnesium it's all you hear about but why what do we know about magnesium well magnesium is the number one mineral that 75 percent of americans are deficient in If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.